agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Michelle Wild Anderson, professor of property, local government, and environmental justice at Stanford Law School. Today we'll be talking about her recently released book, The Fight to Save the Town, Reimagining Discarded America, which the New York Times called an artful mixture of ethnography, narrative history, in-depth interviews and legal scholarship. I definitely agree with that, and I'm just really pleased to be talking with her today. Professor Anderson, welcome to the show. Well, I'm so delighted to be here. Your conversations on this podcast are so enriching. Thanks so much. So, you know, I I wanted to start with, well, it's kind of a standard question, but I think it's an important question. Um, And that's just, why did you decide to write this book, because honestly, I would not necessarily expect this book from someone in your position. So I know there's a story about it, and I'm eager to hear it. Yeah, there's a lot of stories behind it, but I'll start <laughs> with just um, one, which is that I care a lot about rural places um, rooted in my childhood and you know family and so forth. And so I, as an academic, I've always worked on rural governments and especially rural governments with a lot of poverty. In California, we have tons of really concentrated rural poverty. And, um, and so when you care about rural places and you care about poor communities, you get a lot of weak governments. And so I've worked on weak governments my whole career. And then during the Great Recession, we went through this massive wave of fiscal collapse, even in big cities. And so I started shifting toward really thinking about what it meant for local government to be weak, even in really urban places. The approach you took to this book is, I guess I'll call it uncharacteristic in in, in a way, at least, not what I would have expected and a really pleasant surprise. So could you talk a little bit about your approach to this book? Yeah. I mean, first of all, let me just say a a quick nutshell about what it's about, just to orient folks. But um, the the project is really about local government haves and have-nots. It's really about inequality among cities and among counties. Um, and and it's so at core, it's really about places that are broke, but also poor and the ways that they're broke in part because they're poor and that their people remain poor in part because their governments are broke. So it's really about what happens as government weakens in places where people don't have cash in their pockets to buy a lot of the things that government would otherwise do for us, whether it's libraries or clean water or access to a car to any kind of transportation um, and so forth. And in a lot of the country, you really can't take those kinds of basic services for granted. Um, As I went deeper and deeper into this project, I realized that in many places in the country, you can't take um, basic uh, emergency services for granted either, whether it's fire or 911 dispatch. so that's what the project is is really about. And I felt like we didn't have a lot of time to you know, write about just the problem alone. Um, these places have been dealing with this problem for decades, and even though the recession did make it worse. And so I wanted to write a solutions-oriented book. Um, but in order to do that, I wanted to really pass a microphone 
two people who have already been working on this problem for a long time. And so that's really how the, the project was built, was interviewing people, whether it's policy leaders or um, elected officials or heads of nonprofits or mothers who are activists in their neighborhoods, just all across society, really talking to people about how to address this this um, this problem of in- incredibly concentrated poverty in places where the government is pretty um, remote or or weak. And, and you talked to quite a few of these people, didn't you, in the process? Yeah, the the book. I mean, I read a million things too, but the the backbone of the book is is 250 interviews with the kinds of people I mentioned, um, and I also ended up really um, because it's a profile of four places and really kind of wraps around those four communities to understand how we got here and how they're moving forward. And so I ended up digging really deeply into their urban history, their, you know, their local histories, too. Um, that was super fun and interesting um, because the four places are really different from each other. And so they give you this amazing portrait of of um, of four very what I think of as kind of um, deeply American communities with these incredible backstories. Um, but they're so different from each other. So there was a lot of of, um, uh, you know, more typical academic reading for this project. Um, but at, at base, this is really trying to hold up the, the knowledge and solutions that have been generated on the ground. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like a lot of times when we think about these issues of, of poverty, city, citywide poverty, which we'll get to more specifically in a minute, that we, we hear a lot from people in think tanks in D.C. and politicians at the national level. But one of the things I think we maybe don't do enough of is go to the grassroots organizers, the people who have a much better sense of things on the ground and what's going to work and what potentially won't. And that's, to me, that feels like one of the real strengths of this book. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, it was one of the rewards of writing it for sure, um, because when you, you know, sit alongside people that are fighting these supposedly hopeless fights against some of the hardest challenges in poverty today, um, there's a kind of um, inherent optimism and and um just belief in our future that starts to rub off on you so i it was an incredible privilege to you know to report the book in this particular way um and i think it really needed to be a more story driven and narrative driven book because we tell stories about these kinds of cities all the time. And, you know, I'd love to turn this question around to you and ask <laughs> a little bit about the stories that outsiders tell about Kentucky itself. You know, it's one of these places that I think is deeply kind of um, is deep in the American imagination. There's a lot of pathologizing that goes on or your hometown of, of Cleveland. There's a lot of pathologizing that goes on of these places. Um they get put on, you know, most miserable place to live, kind of clickbait blog rankings. And, you know, a lot of reporting about them really focuses on violence and the opioid crisis and so forth. And so we're constantly telling stories about the hopelessness of American poverty. And I think those stories enable a certain amount of 
of um, absenteeism in really joining the struggle to to um, secure upward mobility in the country. And um, so I think that the stories we tell are really important. And I, I'll just say one other thing about that is that when we tell these stories that these places are hopeless and if we try to do anything, we're just throwing good money after bad, politicians withdraw aid. And I think it reinforces the literal problem on the ground, which is that nobody has any money to do anything. Um, so if you're serious about addressing the underlying political will failure in the system, I think we have to have different and broader more true stories of the hardship, but also the resilience and commitment of the people there. Yeah, stories that kind of are much more contextual and bring in these things, you're right, that we don't hear a lot about. And and certainly, uh, Kentucky, you're right, definitely there's there's an image there, as there is of Cleveland, and they're not, they're, they tend not to be uh, really awesome, certainly. Uh, you know, a, a term I mentioned just briefly a minute ago, citywide poverty, it, it's an important term. Uh, you've you bring it up, you bring it in early in the book. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Can you explain what you mean by that term and kind of how much it has grown over time and how really big of a deal citywide poverty is in this country right now? Yeah, so that's the metric that I use to capture um, when poverty is is uh, jurisdiction wide. So that sounds wonky, but we all know how our city or our county is a tax base. It's a legal entity. And so those boundaries matter and the, the poverty rate within those boundaries matter a lot. And I, unfortunately, I think in... Um, just as a feature of, of the development of sociology and poli-sci over time, we've really focused on neighborhood scale poverty and regional poverty, but we've kind of skipped this jurisdiction scale. And for me as a lawyer, that that scale matters a ton. So the so the quick answer of what citywide poverty, the definition that I've you know created in the book is that at least one in five of people in the in the city or county live under the poverty line. And I mean, I just want folks to sort of pause and kind of think about what that means. So that means 20% of people in town live under the annual income of about $26,000 a year for a family of four. So once you've got, you know, 20% of your population living under that line, you've got a really intense problem of concentrated poverty. Um, but I combine that with um, with a second metric, which has to do with uh, the relationship to this, the median income of the state. Um, and that is really to, to capture that these places have lots of concentrated poverty, but they also don't have concentrated pockets of wealth to balance out their tax base. So this is a book about the Detroits of the world, not a book about the San Francisco's of the world, even though San Francisco has devastating concentrations of poverty in some of our neighborhoods. I'm speaking to you from San yeah. Francisco, so that's well, you know, th there are there are, I think, a lot of Detroit's or Detroit-ish kind of places. And we I mentioned Cleveland because Cleveland usually in those rankings, that those metrics you talk about is right up there neck and neck with Detroit. But, you know, there it, it occurred to me when I was reading this that 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 there are also a lot of I don't know if I call them in between cities, but like where I live right now, Cincinnati, I mean, almost a quarter of 
Cincinnati residents are under the poverty line, but the median household income is sort of by you know the metric you said a little too high, though it's still not great to kind of fit into that. And it occurred to me that that there's maybe even a broader scope for some of the things that you investigate and and some of the prescriptions that you have not past more just these kind of citywide poverty cities, but maybe near poverty cities. And I wanted to get you know your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I was really stingy about how I define this problem. (laughs) So meaning that I made it really hard for cities to qualify. They've got to have, you know, devastating levels of concentrated poverty in a very low income, um, you know, citywide. And so that excludes a lot of places that are just above that, those metrics. I mean, in California, there are 76 places that are um, that would be defined as citywide poverty, but our cost of living is so high that if you're if you've got 20% of people living under 26k for a family of four, you know you are broker than broke, yeah. and we have lots of places that wouldn't formally qualify for that, but where the actual quality of living and the sort of conditions of the area are extremely poor. In fact, most of our big cities in the San Joaquin Valley, which is one of the poorest regions in America, um, don't quite qualify under my standard, even though, you know, by any by any sort of um, reasonable understanding of what poverty means, they're they're um, in deep trouble. So, you know, you could define this in different ways and it would scoop up the Cincinnati's of the world. It would scoop up the Fresno's of the world and a lot of other bigger cities um, with these problems. Yeah. And I bring that up because I really think that yeah, clearly, I mean, you're focusing on the most impoverished areas, but I really believe that a lot of what you talk about really does apply to like the, the Cincinnati's and the Fresno's of the world. And there are a lot of them, certainly. And, you know, I, yeah, also, I, I totally oh, agree. Yeah. I also want to bring in COVID because COVID's part of everything we talk about these days, right? And, and you know, on one hand, I thought, well, okay, COVID has pretty much made everything worse. But then I could hear some people saying, well, wait a second, there's just been, you know, boatloads of money tossed out there with, you know, ARPA and everything else. And so maybe, maybe that's made it citywide poverty better. I don't know, but I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah. I mean, let me just back up for right before the pandemic. um, A lot of people referred to the period after the Great Recession as the lost decade for local government revenues because of the nature of the Great Recession as a foreclosure crisis. Lots of um, local governments. uh, This is going to get wonky, so I'm going to skip why, (laughs) but let's (laughs) take my word for it for a minute that there was a a massive nationwide revenue problem for local governments. long after the official end of the Great Recession. And then just as you say, when there were big distributions from the federal government related to the pandemic, many people have looked at that money and thought, wow, that's amazing. Kind of we're finally rebalancing the scales. Um, It's a little bit too early to know exactly what local governments have done with a lot of that funding. So we're, you know, we're right in the beginning of the research to really look at what what this period of, of new funding has meant. But I'll say two cautionary notes about it. One is that many local governments are already in such a big hole that they're dragging massive infrastructure needs and a lot of other you know, community development needs into the pandemic with them. Um, and then number two, you know, a lot of the pandemic 
um, emergency funding was related to the pandemic and, you know, immediate relief and immediate sort of displacement, rising unemployment and so forth related to the pandemic itself. So, you know, first and foremost, that money was meant as an emergency measure sort of related to the terrible conditions that local governments found themselves in right away. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that there's, you know, we're still trying to figure out kind of where we're all going to live and how this shakes out in population, you know, internal migration in the country and so forth. Um, so there, you know, there could be a lot of change in front of us and it's not all bad. I would just say one other quick thing about the pandemic, just to add a note of sunshine, <laughs> <laughs> what has otherwise been a grim and a heartbreaking period in the country um, that, you know, in the places that I was writing about deeply because they had worked so hard after the recession to kind of sew their communities back together in ways that I think we'll talk about later in the discussion, they went into the pandemic with stronger social networks, sort of among nonprofits and within government and, you know, among neighbors and so forth. And needless to say, those networks were a godsend during the pandemic because, you know, for all kinds of reasons, you know, people um, uh, needed institutions to be working together, to be connected to the public, to be, you know, known as credible sources of information and so forth to really, um, you know, to really address the specific nature of of the pandemic and, and you know, some of the um, misinformation that was going on, you know, early in the pandemic. Um, so they've been the kinds of things I wrote about were not designed to deal with a pandemic, but you really saw the same kind of progress I was documenting sort of turned toward this new problem and really um, look out for people in hard times. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I almost want to. Well, I do want to go back even before the uh, the the Great Recession, because there's there's a story that at least many of us on the left tell ourselves and tell other people about citywide poverty, I think. And it's the story basically goes, well, starting in the 80s, conservatives and in, in state and federal government uh, essentially cut off funding to cities and said, hey, buddy, you're on your own at this point. Figure it out or it's not our problem, basically. And and I, you've looked at this very deeply. To, to what extent would you say that's true, or is are there any misconceptions in there, or or, or what have you? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that in sort of political terms because I want to answer it in political terms too. But I'll start okay. with just the baseline facts about federal money. So um, you're absolutely right. States and the federal government can help equalize funding across local governments, right? If you suck money up to a centralized government and then you pass it back out to local governments, you can flatten some of the inequality among local governments. And that's been going on, you know, across America. It still goes on to this day, especially in schools, which are the one thing we're actually entitled to have from local governments. Um, but uh, but you're, as a factual matter, it's true that since the 1980s, the federal government has generally done less of that equalization. So it's generally passed less money down through the states um, to local governments. Um, and uh, meanwhile, state governments have sort of weathered um, 
really 30 years of, of ballot measures at the statewide level to constrain the raising of taxes at the state level. So many states have also lessened their distribution from, you know, essentially what is state income taxes passed down to low income local governments. But I love that you, so I think, you know, those are the facts. I, I don't think there's a lot of debate about those super big picture dynamics going on. Um, but there is a political interpretation of what's going on that I think is important to see too, which is that the, the political right um, has two strong uh, stories. Um, one is that uh, local governments overall have grown. And that's true. Local governments overall have grown. But the thing is, they're growing unequally. So you're getting, you know, wealthy places that have grown a ton with new services, new programs, more expensive benefits of various kinds, while other very poor areas have shrunk. So if you only look at this stuff at the state level, you, you know, you miss the underlying inequality between rich and poor places. Um, the second uh, story that I think we we tell, which I also think is wrong, I, re I really think of it as a myth of anti-poverty work, um, is that we tried tons of government programs and they all failed. And so we have to stop throwing good money after bad. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that for a lot of American history, really, since you know the end of World War II, um, so many of our more intensive community-based um, and resident-focused federal funds were concentrated on our biggest cities. So, you know, the New York, San Francisco, Chicago's of the country. Um, and I don't think we ever did enough to really support smaller cities. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, across the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, deindustrialization, global competition, and restructuring were costing these areas tons of additional jobs. And then in the 2000s, before the recession, um, the number of jobs in manufacturing falls off its steepest cliff in any decade. So heading into the Great Recession, you know, places like this were really at a at a massive low point. And here, too, I can't, you know, it's like tempting to turn the tables and ask you about Kentucky because, you um, you know, there's another big story that we tell all the time about these kinds of places, which is that we have thrown tons of training at them, right? That we tried to retrain, we tried to get people into better jobs, and, you know, those retraining programs failed. And and I have heard from, I've not done work directly and deeply on Kentucky, but I'm kind of dying to one day. And one of the things I've heard in some conversations in the region is that um, training is almost a bad word. It's kind mm -hmm. of associated with a lot of failed um, Yeah. Programs. Yeah, definitely. But it's really interesting in when I worked on Southern Oregon, one of the places that we'll describe from the book, if you really dig into those programs, you realize that these programs have big names and they look elaborate, but they're really dinky. I mean, you're talking about, you know, programs in Josephine County, Oregon, that I wrote about in the book that, you know, where a dozen people at a time are in a six-month training program, and then it's canceled after two years. Oh, geez, yeah. So, 
you know, you're talking about these tiny little things and, you know, they showed good returns, but they're just not covering enough workers. And then meanwhile, across the same time period of all this worker displacement, the 80s are massively cutting budgets to just the normal community college programs that people would be in without these fancier training tracks. Or I shouldn't call them fancy, but designated, like, you know, branded training tracks. And so, you know, at some point you've got to, if you have a massive macroeconomic transition in your country, like we should have had a heroic reinvestment, reinvention vision for community colleges in the country. And instead, I think we had too many ribbon cuttings on too many small programs that, you know, didn't reach enough people. Well, you know, and, and this gets, I think it's a, it's a nice segue in a way into, uh, I, I also call them bad solutions or problematic solutions, which mm-hmm. you talk about in the book. And one of them is, is what you call a suitcase solutions, because I think this fits in well, because the, the thinking maybe is, well, you know, we've tried everything, everything has failed. And so, and that, I think that leads us maybe to that suitcase solution thinking. And, and maybe you could explain a little bit about what that is and why it is problematic. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this, um, just as you said, it's this idea that we'd be throwing good money after bad if we keep putting money in a town like Flint, Michigan, for instance. And so the residents of the people, you know, the people of Flint should move toward jobs, you know, get out of this poverty trap city and move toward jobs. Um, the larger problem with a suitcase's answer to this kind of poverty is that it's way too widespread and the amount of kind of physical spatial housing turnover that's needed to relocate masses of our population is just not realistic. I mean, I think about the suitcase's answer in the context of Stockton, California, which has 325,000 people. It's one of the cities I wrote about in my book. And um, Stockton, you know, is constantly vilified in the California press for being, you know, a, a disaster and incredibly poor, high rates of violence and so forth. But, you know, 325,000 people and in across Silicon Valley, which is, you know, not far away, um, the smaller governments, you know, routinely permit 70, 80, 90 housing units a year, you know, they are not willing to take in masses of people um, dislocated from Stockton. So and then meanwhile, you know, the reality of American poverty is that um, is that 39 percent of Americans can't dig up four hundred dollars in an emergency, you know, let alone the cost (laughs) of moving their family. And when people move away from, you know, elder parents or, you know, extended family networks and so forth, um, they lose out on the opportunity to, you know, care for those loved ones, but also to have people help raise their kids. So, you know, low-income people rely on family networks to make ends meet. And if you, you know, yeah. So anyway, you know, I just think the suitcases thing is is naive and and mostly it's just been disproven because we've been trying that for 40 years so here we yeah. are well you know th- there's an element of it i'll, I'll get it. this kind of i don't know revs me up a little bit i guess but really bugs me is that 
I think a lot of that thinking, it seems to me, is premised on this idea that people are like hyper-rational utility maximizers. So even if they have the ability to raise the money to move and all that, it, it's you know it's the, the social ties and the emotional ties and all of that that I think maybe many of the people who are sort of like urban professionals who are used to moving from city to city and don't have those ties don't maybe – don't really appreciate that as much, but that is a to me that is a really potent thing that oftentimes policy analysis doesn't doesn't take into account. It's so true, and also the dignity impacts. I mean, you know, in a lot of the places I work on, the home the um, home ownership rate is still pretty good, but you know, you you go to a town full of you know a higher poverty town in Pennsylvania full of. Um, homeowners, you know, with a lot of homeowners whose homes may not be worth that much, but, you know, they do own them and they have the security that comes in the status, the kind of cultural status that comes from homeownership. And you tell them, like, we expect you to move to a floodplain in Houston and become a tenant, you know, in a low wage service job, like being a janitor or something. And that's, you know, that's your duty as an American. And, you know, that's all well and good to say. And no politician would ever say that <laughs> yeah, directly. But effectively, that's what our politics have been saying to these regions forever. And I think in 2016, those regions of the country made it pretty clear that that's not a, you know, a move they're willing to make. You know, they're, they're, they want to stay in their communities for the emotional or family ties or the attachment to the place or the local history or whatever, or just for the quality of life thing. They're not convinced that it's better to be poor in, you know, Atlanta than it is to be, you know, poor in Pennsylvania. You mentioned regions a little bit, and actually it's kind of, well, it doesn't time exactly, but one of the other sort of problematic solutions to this that have been tried is, is what you call regional solutions to this problem of citywide poverty. Can you talk a little bit about that next? Yeah, I mean, policymakers, you know, really, especially on the left, have just, you know, really hoped for and worked for and in researched all kinds of ways of combining local governments. You know, states like Pennsylvania have tons of tiny little governments that all have to provide basic services, and that's not very efficient, but it's also just, you know, as they lose population, it becomes more and more um, difficult to adjust. And so, you know, there's there's been a lot of ideas about combining governments um, to you know, deal with some of this inequality so that wealthier tax bases would mix with poorer ones. And, you know, the level of public education, for instance, would rise um, across the jurisdiction. But, you know, I came of age as a person in urban studies, you know, after these things had been rejected by voters for 30 years, just one after another after another, you know, voters for reasons of um, interracial mistrust for reasons of socioeconomic discrimination, for reasons of just, you know, fear of the unknown, fear of bigger bureaucracies, like all kinds of dynamics, you know, voters just one after another of these, you know, proposals have gone down. Um, so, you know, sitting here now, we could count the number of regional governments on the number of real ones on one hand. 
And this has been going on for a long time. So again, like keep fighting the good fight, guys. But like, meanwhile, back <laughs> yeah. to the farm. A, a solution that <laughs> you can't implement. Yeah. Still going on. yeah, yeah. A solution <laughs> that you can't implement isn't really much of a solution in the real world, right? And and then there are also solutions that, uh, well, maybe you, you can you can try to implement them, but it turns out that they're not the panacea that you might think. They would be, and I think that kind of leads us right into spreadsheet, spreadsheet solutions to these to these problems or so called solutions, right? Yeah, no, I that's that's exactly right. So spreadsheet solutions to me is the kind of idea that that the real problem in these places is that somebody is you know incompetent at managing the city's finances that if they could get the spreadsheets right and you know use some of the cutting edge financing tools and you know best thinking about spending and so forth that they could fix these problems but and you know sometimes you there this these places do need administrative improvements i mean i've watched these local governments go through all kinds of administrative upgrades that are exceptionally important to good functioning of government and cost-effective functioning. So I don't want to, you know, negate that, but that is not the same as addressing the revenue problem, which is that you're broke, your people are broke, and so there's just not enough money coming in. You know, we can't solve every, you know, every household is not poor because they're spending too much money. Some of them are poor because they literally don't have money coming in. And that's a really important separate problem. And we just can't pretend that a state appointee or, you know, some kind of um, uh, expert can come in and kind of get the spreadsheets right and make these problems vanish. It, it made me think of uh, parks and recreation when, you know, in Pawnee, they had the not necessarily all that bright yokels running things. That's the mm -hmm. narrative, right? And then you have, you know, Ben and Chris Traeger come in and try to fix things up. And and that's just not, I mean, and that, that right leads into those kind of false narratives about how, well, if we're talking about like these these rural places, well, it's because people are stupid because all the smart people have left, right? And so you're just left with the dregs and which is why even more people should. And so these things like reinforce, it seems to me, in a really negative kind of depressing way in many in many cases, you know? Um, yeah. And they, they go along with another story that gets told all the time, which is, you know, consistent with your, you know, portrayal, which is, you know, this idea that the real problem these places have is corruption. Yeah. You know, it's not just incompetence. It's actually people stealing money, you know, kickback schemes, nepotism and hiring, you know, um, all kinds of uh, mismanagement scandals. And, you know, there's some of that. And the truth is that the more hopeless the stories are that we tell about these places, the fewer people are going to want to go into office. And so the truth is that, you know, there's a certain amount of mismanagement sort of tangled up in all of this. But there, too, if it's the only story we tell, we totally exaggerate the numbers, first of all. You know, the Detroit has a history of, of corruption scandals. But when you actually look at the numbers, they are tiny in comparison with the big economic problems that the city has had. So you have to really, you know, call a spade a spade. Yes, that's a problem. But, you know, handcuffs on a few officials are not going to solve all the problems in this town either. Um, and that's been true. You know, all the places that I worked on 
by design. I chose all of them because in part because they were all coming out of a period of mismanagement when levels of faith in the government were really low. Um, levels of faith sort of in the town, but also how state officials looked at the town. And so in some ways, I kind of, um, you know, in, in documenting these stories of people's struggles to kind of climb out of that, I was really watching officials um, you know, try to rebuild the reputation of the government, you know, earn back citizen trust in the government and refocus on, you know, the real job they had to do as as caretakers and, you know, public officials. Well, you know, and I think if if that's the story you're telling and the story people believe about lack of trust in government, if as, as many people on the right from from the 80s on, like say, is government is the problem, then that leads us to another potential solution, right? Saying, well, if government is the problem and we need these services, well, why does government have to do these services? Can't someone else do these services? You know, which gets into, I think, this this kind of substitution issue. Yeah, so that's what I call the sort of, you know, as a shorthand for the idea that that if government got out of the way, the private sector would flourish. And these places that I'm writing about are kind of a, an experiment for that. You know, they really at some level, they are, you know, an example of places where the government has been weak or absent for a long time. And, you know, I write about just heroic citizen efforts, neighborhood level, you know, neighborhood level efforts, um, nonprofits, churches, you know, you name it. I mean, this book is full of incredible people looking out for each other. So I'm all for private action. In fact, that's kind of so much of the heart of this book. But what you see in these kinds of places is that the um, is that private poverty precedes the government's poverty. So in other words, when the, by the time the government is really broke, you know, lots of other nonprofits in town are weaker too, you know, especially in these, Detroit is the only city I wrote about that's really kind of national and famous when it comes to philanthropy and, you know, private donations. Um, but most places of citywide poverty, you know, most people have never heard of, they are not places that attract a lot of philanthropic or private money. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and local volunteers do their best, but the overall poverty rates mean that individual people are overstretched and, you know, the scale of need just outmans the scale of volunteerism that is available. Um, so again, you know, in these places, I'm all for public-private cooperation. That's kind of the heart of what this book is about. But, um, but I, you know, I, I think the substitution theory um, has, uh, you know, well, folks can read what it looks like. I mean, yeah. you, you yeah. end up with very scattered, small-scale efforts here and there, but they just are, you know, Band-Aids on, on serious battle wounds born, you know, grown over time. But you're also, and I want to make this clear, not saying that, well, the solution is just more money, because that's one of the, you say that's one of the problematic things. If you just say, well, we're just going to throw more money on it. Of course, conservatives have been saying that for a long time. Now, you mean it in a different sense, but I think it's important to point out that if you say, well, that's not, a, that's not an answer in and of itself, too, right? Right. And, you know, I'll answer that with just describing this conversation I had with a, an amazing community leader in Stockton. And he was 
saying how he was really glad that Stockton in a big round of, of federal funding um, fa- it failed in a competitive grant program um, that it had applied for because he said we weren't quite ready for it yet. And I sort of pressed him and we talked about it at length and he just described how there was still so much mistrust among nonprofits, a lot of negative competition. You know, when people are scrapping for dollars in environments of scarcity for years on end, you know, you get really weak forms of cooperation. And he said, if this big pot of money had landed in at that particular time, like we weren't ready to work together. And but they did get some planning money to really support a lot of the coordination and cooperation that was necessary. Um, So eventually, you know, they did qualify and they did get funding under this program in a future cycle. Um, But I've never forgotten that because I think sometimes the left thinks you can just, you know, hurl money at anything. And the truth is you need functional cooperative um, actors at the local level in order for state and federal programs to be effective. And and the goal of this, of course, is to uh, turn cities into places where people can flourish and have opportunities. The, the term that you use in the book is gateway cities. And, of course, cities like Detroit and Cleveland, well, they used to be gateway cities and they're not. And it seems to me that a lot of people would say, well, OK, then what did Detroit and Cleveland and cities like Stockton and cities like that do wrong? And how can it be more like and maybe like shooting for like like Boston or New York is kind of too high because those cities are unique in certain ways. Right. But maybe like newer cities that seem to be doing things right, like Austin or Denver. And I'm wondering, well, I guess in general, what you think about framing the question? Is that even makes sense as a good way to frame it or or is that maybe not even the, the best way to look at this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's the best way to look at it. But let me come back to that. I think you're you know, you're. Um your critical hunch about that is right. But I'll just back up and you know say it's right. The book uses this idea of gateway cities as just an alternative way of talking about what the what the what's the opposite of a poverty trap. Like I think we need a, right. a, a we need a a basic kind of vocabulary for what it means for a place to give people a path out of out of intergenerational poverty. And so I use it as kind of a general aspirational term. Um, And, you know, many of our blue collar hubs in the country, not just in the Rust Belt, but all over the West and the South, really had this gateway cities um, function. They really did help give people a decent quality of life, even if they were poor and the, you know, built environment is modest. You know, there was a decent quality of life and people had the chance to stay in town or leave town um, and make it to other places. Um, And, you know, when, so I think that's, that's the goal. And then the question that you pose, which is a really hard and smart one is, you know, what would, what's, what did Cleveland and Detroit do wrong? And what would it take to turn them into gateway cities? And that question I think is right. It's just that I wouldn't take their playbook from the San Francisco's of the world. Um, And right now I think that's very much what's going on in Detroit. Um, Somewhat what's going on in Cleveland, although I think the new mayor has a much bigger vision, but in, um, you know, in Detroit, since the city's bankruptcy, there really has been this vision of, um, you know, a sort of te- a central tech, um, high high tech um, 
economic engine in the center of Detroit, and that is going well. Detroit's growth in the kind of 21st century service economy jobs has been really impressive. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that is a trickle-down vision for how to save the larger 600,000 people who live in Detroit. And um, so I don't think that's a vision of this of how to deal with the, the deeper intergenerational poverty issues in Detroit or the, the just devastating history of racial segregation and, um, and racial uh, discrimination that has gone on in the city's history. You know, that that idea that a downtown burst will kind of lift all ships, I think really pretends that there's not as much scar tissue in the city as there is um, when it comes to segregation and discrimination. So at some level, there has to be some other vision for how to invest in the people of the city, not just the tax base. You know, and I think a lot of people maybe uh, would point to a city, say, like Pittsburgh, right, which Obviously, Rust Belt City had all kinds of problems in the 70s. And they say, well, look at Pittsburgh. It's a tech hub and all that. But then I think, well, what they maybe don't appreciate is there is that sort of that, that sort of educational, that really incredibly rich educational base in there with, you know, Carnegie Mellon and so forth that a lot of a lot of areas like, say, Josephine County, Oregon, don't don't have. And you can't really build that from from nothing, basically. Right. Right. Yeah. Pittsburgh had some of the raw ingredients that I think exactly as you say, make it more like a, you know, knowledge economy hub like San Francisco because of its big university, you know, its big university heart. Um, and uh, but also, you know, it's interesting. I almost included the Mon Valley, the Monongahela Valley mm -hmm. outside of Pittsburgh in this book. It was one of the places that was on the cutting room floor. It would the Monongahela Valley is a collection of small towns, but I was going to write about them jointly, and um, and I will one day. But one of the things about the Mon Valley that you learn is that. Pittsburgh did, you know, it is a very impressive uh, recovery in some respects, but part of how Pittsburgh has recovered is by building this giant engine of, of hospitals and, you know, the Eds and Meds engine of, of the city. Um, and though, and in the hospital sector in particular, it has sort of drained a lot of the clinics and a lot of the jobs from its inner ring. So the truth is that I think a lot of Pittsburgh's revitalization has relied on draining and weakening um, its inner right. ring. So I think it's not quite as much of a model as, you know, we might wish. Um, and, and I, you know, I don't mean to like rain on the parade of, <laughs> yeah. you know, having some counterexamples. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the four places that I wrote about in the book, I chose in part because I think they're solving their own problems without kind of making things worse for anybody else. And, and you know, those four places you talk about, it seems like if, if you would have given me these four places, I would have just assumed you picked them out of a hat because they seem so random, right? Stockton, California, Josephine County, Oregon, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and then Detroit. And so I think anyone looking at that would be like, how, what do those things, what do those places have in common, right? And, but there was a lot of thought that went into why you ended up with those, those places. So can you talk about that? Yeah, um, I. It's, it's funny that you describe them as random. I guess I've I've so lost touch with the idea of them as random right. places. Um, it's a funny description, but it's so true. Um, 
So I chose them really carefully. The the problem of citywide poverty is a problem that runs from super conservative to super liberal, you know, in terms of the local politics. It runs across racial groups and it runs from, you know, rural to urban. And so I really wanted the places that I wrote about to hold that diversity. Um, And uh, and so I can say a little bit about the four of them if if that would help. But but I'll just say that at the super big picture level, I um, chose them in part because they um, each of them had really good work going on and and a really um, uh, you know they were very easy to sort of come in as an outsider and really get to know those networks of work. And in part, I wrote about them because they made themselves open and available to, um, to you know, helping me learn about the, the community and its networks, which in, in its own way is a sign of their kind of functionality and, and progress. Um, and, you know, so they let me in. Um, and then each of them has this peculiar kind of fascinating urban history that made them just beautiful subjects in their own right. Um, so yeah, they they had they ended up being um, kind of ideal to write yeah. about. Well, you know, I, I, this is this is weird. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question. I'm gonna say preface by saying I hate asking this question, but I feel it's really important because the the heart of your book are just these really beautiful, uh, like detailed narratives about the people and the, and the situations in these cities. And so it seems almost criminal for me to ask, ask you to give kind of like a short capsule of each of these cities or something. But, but I feel like that's really important too. So understanding that there's no way possible that you can do justice to everything you write about in there. Can you talk just a little bit about maybe, you know, the, the, the nature of what you saw, the unique nature of the problem in each of those places and maybe something that gave you some hope in each of those places? Yeah, great. I'd, I'd love to. I could talk about them all day, but I won't. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, starting closest to me right now in San Francisco is the city of Stockton, which, as I said, 325,000 people. It is the most diverse city in America, which I think is fascinating in and of itself. And sort of, you know, the backstory of how a city becomes that diverse is this incredible kind of global story of everything from, you know, foreign wars and displacement and refugee lines to, you know, the the origin of American ag and the gold rush. And just there's so many pieces of California and world history sort of embedded in a city that diverse. Um, so it's very special, but it's also, you know, a manufacturing capital of a rural region. So in order to have the kind of mass food production that California provides for the world, you know, we need like this big urban hub that is the big distribution and manufacturing node for a lot of food, you know, where whether it's canneries or, you know, shipping lines or whatnot. Right. Um, so that's that's Stockton. It's like very urban, but also very rural in this interesting way. And then traveling north, Josephine County, Oregon, is one of the epicenters of the big spotted owl controversy that some of your listeners will remember from the nineties, mm-hmm. you know, one of the biggest early meltdowns in environmental politics. So in its for the spotted owl, it's kind of famous in its own way. Um, but, you know, today is about 88,000 people, um, politically very conservative, but has this totally fascinating back history of, you know, being a sort of commune portal in the West. 
um, you know, so a lot of uh, communes on the far right and the far left sort of settled off the grid there. Um, and it is nearly all white now. So it and always has been. Um, and then Detroit is uh, 600,000 people, predominantly black, but the fastest diversifying city in the country. Um, and uh, has an ongoing foreclosure crisis, like a sustained ongoing foreclosure crisis that is absolutely devastating. And I think symbolic of this larger problem of Black land loss across the Rust Belt that we have today. And then last but definitely not least is Lawrence, Massachusetts, which is a um, in early 20th century was a very famous city because it was a giant of American textiles. Um, but uh, today is 88,000 people, about 80 percent Latino, and nicknamed the Latino City for that reason. Um, just this incredible uh, immigrant has always been this incredible immigrant portal um, in in Massachusetts. So that's kind of the the overview, and and each of them had. Um, incredible uh, stories of progress to tell on one of the big, um, you know, one of the central challenges of American poverty. And so I, I know when, when we, when we look into solutions, uh, that's this idea that there's any kind of one right solution that's going to work for Lawrence, that works for Detroit, that works for Stockton, what have you. That I think that's sort of a, a fallacy. And I think in the book, you're really good about not kind of, you know, impose, trying to impose them. So, well, we just need to do this, right? But at, by the same token, I think you have some general, generally applicable maybe not solutions, but principles. You've talked a lot about trust and you talk about that throughout the book. And so maybe you can talk a little more as we kind of near the end here, talk a little bit about the importance of trust and maybe other things that you think you've learned that are more generally applicable. Yeah. I mean, so each, you know, the, the chapters focus on four of these giant problems on, on deal, on healing the fallout of high levels of exposure to violence on ongoing uh, housing displacement, on unlivable wages, um, on the collapse in basic public services. And so that's, you know, at some level, each of them is kind of a, a snapshot of, of a local answer to one of those. But just as you say, this was not meant as a playbook book. You know, I think we have policy um, writing about what to do about the, you know, similar problems to this. Um, and like I said, I really wanted to write almost like a proof of concept book, like people can move against yeah. these giant challenges, um, even though, uh, you know, um, and and really looking at the way that happens locally. Um, but I, the trust piece is critical. And, you know, at the end, I say it would be such a boring book title to call the book Trust and Relationships. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if I had a dollar for every time somebody in an interview talked about one of those, I could take us to a very fancy <laughs> lunch money. I mean, they just came up constantly because when places have dealt with intergenerational poverty and, you know, government poverty for a long time, you know, those basic systems of trust and cooperation weaken and um, fall apart. And so a big part of what, you know, these places have to do is sort of take these vicious cycles of decline and scarcity and really turn people toward 
mutual aid and and not just at the neighbor to neighbor level, although that's super important in the book talks about restoring trust among individuals, but also just at the institution level of how places can, you know, work together more effectively to solve these problems. Because when everybody's broke, you know, you can't just plant a flag and have some awesome like adult ed program that falls out of the sky. Like instead, you have to have these integrated networks where the vocational school does this little piece and the lead nonprofit does that and the city government does this. And you have these tables full of people working together. Um, So I really, especially because of the pandemic, when we use this concept of mutual aid all the time, I really started to think about, you know, the, the ultimate story in this book as a story of, of mutual aid and, you know, what happened, how to create that and foster it at kind of the civic level. And, and you know, there's a distinction I often make between political timelines and policy timelines. And political timelines tend to, you know, go from election to election, so they're necessarily short. But policy timelines, especially when you're talking about something like rebuilding trust, which can take a tremendous, really kind of persistent effort over many years, there's a pretty big disjunction there, right? And I think a lot of people maybe don't appreciate that there's not like, even if it is a really well-designed program, if it goes into that environment where the trust is not really you know, there, it's, it's, it's likely to fail. And this isn't the sort of thing you can necessarily expect to turn around in a year or two, or maybe even, you know, a decade necessarily, right? That is critical. I just like want to put a big exclamation after that, because that's one of the problems is that, you know, local government officials get elected on these short cycles. And so they need a ribbon cutting or a big press release or something to show their, you know, more immediate outcomes. But these bigger, deeper problems, um, you know, they don't show returns on these political timelines. And, you know, I think about this in Stockton so much where people were really trying to move against the levels of trauma that came from sustained neighborhood violence over time. And really the aftershocks of the crack epidemic, which remain with Stockton to this day, because so many children were now in their 20s, grew up, you know, dealing with, um, you know, peak national homicide rates and a terrible drug epidemic. And so these rates of trauma, you know, if you really go after that problem and really try to deal with the consequences to families and to parenting and to schools from that kind of exposure to violence in childhood, you are not going to book you know, fancy returns in two or three years. And the advocates in Stockton know this. They really define their work over lifetimes, over like investment in people, love for people, you know, really sort of planting seeds of recovery rather than kind of, you know, waiting for some, you know, transformative um, metric, you know, some metric that you can show transformation with. And so, you know, I can hear some people at this point saying, okay, fine, inspirational stories. We love underdogs and all that, and that's great. But given the political realities and all that, and you can kind of hear this kind of false narrative kind of building, right? But it comes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I think some people would say, yeah, but. And so you have been immersed in this now for quite a while. And so I'm wondering personally, after all you've researched and all you know, do you come away feeling optimistic or at least 
slightly cautiously optimistic that maybe in a generation or so that we'll have less citywide poverty and maybe more gateway cities in this country? You know, if I answer that question directly and honestly, you know, with this level of inequality in the country, um, it's hard for me to, you know, answer yes. I, I'm sure. not sure that I, I could honestly say that. But I but I want to kind of I want to try to shift the question for others as I shifted it for myself, which is really to ask, like, what would be required? Like, what is the radical imagination that would be required to to reimagine more places as gateway cities. And that's what advocates on the ground have to ask themselves. You know, if it's just an up or down vote, like, are we going to be better off in 50 years or not? Then, you know, most people are not going to say yes. But if instead they say, what would be required of me? What would be required of my community in order to make that true? And more people actually ask themselves that question, then we actually could make it true. I mean, you start to really think about where social change comes from. And at some level, it comes from, you know, from persistence and dedication in the face of pessimism. Um, And to that, I can't resist giving Dan Rivera, this amazing mayor of Lawrence, Massachusetts, um, a word on this because he had this message on his whiteboard in his conference room, his mayoral conference room, where he often had meetings with his staff. And um, he was so funny when I met with him there, he tried to, you know, erase it and he was laughing that he couldn't wipe it off anymore. Um, And I think it's the message that he wanted to internalize for himself as a leader, that he wanted his staff to carry with them every day on the job. And that I think, you know, we as members of our own communities with hometowns um, and as voters have to also carry with ourselves. And the message said, do something. Can we do it today? (laughs) It said that in blue. And then in red right below, it said, stop explaining the problem, start explaining the solution. And then at the bottom, his wife had actually written in green because everybody was so demoralized by all the bad press on Lawrence. His wife wrote in green, keep your head up. Um, And I think that about sums it up, you know, and it reminds me of this this guy in Buffalo I interviewed years ago. And he said, you know, nothing will work, but everything just might. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And that, I think, is just a great optimistic way to close this. And I've had just a real pleasure talking with you. So thank you, Michelle Wild Anderson, for taking the time to to share your insights uh, with, with me today. Thank you so much. Those were amazing questions. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.